The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Atomic Habits deep work, the 5 a.m. club, hyper-focus, the productivity project in modern America. Books like these, books on goal setting, are flying off the shelves, or more accurately, arriving at our doorsteps. I mean, everyone realizes that in order to be successful in the present, you have to be visualizing the future you're after. But when you read the Bible, you start to realize that these books, for for all their unique insights or practices, are are actually not very original. not saying they're not helpful. I'm just saying that no modern guru has anything on the Apostle Paul. He was the original goal setter, and he wants to help you live a successful life, a life that doesn't end when you die. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter from prison in Rome to a church in Philippi, northern Greece, and he's, he's calling them to a life together of unified joy, unified joy as they as they follow King Jesus and, and represent him in the world. In the passage last week, we, we looked at what Paul has given up, and this week we're going to look at where he's going. Here's what I think is the main idea of Philippians 12, uh, 3.12 through 4.1, uh, the main idea of the passage and therefore the main idea of the message. Your past doesn't define you, but your future in Christ does. Your past doesn't define you, but your future in Christ does. Live for what will last. Your past doesn't define you, but your future in Christ does. Live for what 
will last. We'll think about this uh, this morning in in three points. Yes, in honor of March Madness, it's a three-pointer. You've not arrived, you're not alone, and you're almost home. You've not arrived, you're not alone, and you're almost home. First, you've not arrived. Paul has structured these first few sentences in parallel, but but you're going to have to track with me here because it's a little, it may be a little confusing on the surface why I've organized these points this way. Technically, if you want to know what point one covers, it's verse 12a and 13a. Point two is covering 12b and 13b, and that's because Paul it has set these verses in parallel to one another. That means that thematically, the first half of verse 12 matches the first half of verse 13. And the second half of verse 12 matches the second half of verse 13. And so we're going to take the pairs in turn in this point and the next. So verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. Paul has just spoken in verse 11, as we saw last week, of what? Attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And here he immediately says, I'm a long way from there. I mean, I haven't achieved that state of perfection. I I have not arrived at my goal. And then as if one disavowal wasn't enough, he reiterates in verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Oh, this should encourage us this morning. I mean, if you've been following Jesus for, for any length of time, if you know yourself at all, this should encourage you. I mean, even the mighty apostle who had a dramatic encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and penned a third of the New Testament that's sitting in your lap, even he, spiritually, wasn't where he wanted to be. At this point, he's, he's been walking with Christ for nearly three decades, nearly three decades, and yet he is deeply aware of how much ground there is left to cover how much farther he has to go. Does that surprise you? Does does that realization in your own life kind of throw you into a tailspin, threaten to kind of sink you into disillusionment or despondency because you're struggling with the same old sins and you feel like you're, you're just spinning your wheels spiritually, maybe sometimes even like, the, the, the car is in reverse. Well, that's possible. I mean, it is possible to think you're a Christian and actually not be, and a lack of fruit can evidence the fact that there was never any real spiritual life. But be, be very careful about taking your spiritual temperature every 30 minutes. We, we should be taking our spiritual temperature over the course of months and years, not hours and days. I mean, imagine you're, you're standing in a field in the, middle of a, in the middle of the night, okay? There, there, there's not a star in the sky. It's pitch black. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. And, and, and you're filthy. You're, you're, you're covered in, in mud, but, but you, don't, you don't realize it. You, you know you, you tripped and you fell, but, but you're not aware just of how dirty you are. And as you try to you know, stumble your way along through this field, all of a sudden, in the distance, you see a little pinprick of light 
and, and, and as you start to get closer, you, you, you realize, oh my, that, that, that's a lamppost. And, and as you head toward it, the closer you get, the more you see yourself. The closer you get to the light, the more aware you become of your filth. And the closer, friends, that we get to the light of the world, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we will realize our need for a Savior and our, his ability to cleanse us. As, as John puts it in 1 John chapter 1, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. In exhibit A of this, this growing, deepening awareness of one's sin, even as they're growing in grace. Exhibit A is Paul himself. I, I want to show you something. So I'll, we'll do this quickly, but, but I, I do want to turn there uh, with you so that you can see what I'm talking about. We're going to look at three passages quickly in the writings of Paul, and I want to show you a progression, okay? So first, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, it's before Philippians. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. And before I read it, you should just know he's writing this in about the year A.D. 55. Okay? So this is Paul in A.D. 55. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles. I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 8055. Paul's humble. He realizes he's the least of the apostles. Now turn to Ephesians 3:8. Ephesians is the book immediately before Philippians. Ephesians 3.8. Paul is writing this in about A.D. 60. A.D. 60, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. And he says this in Philippians 3.8. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. That's a bigger group. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Unless you think he's done, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, which he's writing in the year, eight, likely A.D. 62. So we've gone from 55 to 60 to 62, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1, near the end of the New Testament, he says this in verse 15, 1 Timothy 1.15 here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Not of whom I was the worst. Of whom I am the worst. Do you see that? AD 55, he's like, I'm the least of all apostles. Five years later, I'm the least of all Christians. Two years after that, I'm the least the worst of all humans. Oh, beloved, spiritual growth is downward. 
It's the journey of becoming more aware of your unworthiness, your darkness and dirtiness, and need for the cleansing lamppost, the cleansing light of gospel grace. Every Christian is a struggling Christian. Get used to it. You have not arrived. Number two, you're not alone. You've not arrived. Number two, you're not alone. One commentator reflects on uh, this, this passage like, like this, and I think it sets up uh, point too well. He says, does, does this realization that Paul hasn't arrived sink him into despondency? Does it lead him to a life of sin, knowing that perfection is impossible in this life anyway? Does it cause Paul to place blame on his environment or others around him for his shortcomings? Does it spur him to pursue godliness through a detailed list of spiritual disciplines, hoping that if he just follows the formula, he will reach his goal? None of the above. In contrast to 12 steps or seven laws or five principles or 40 days, Paul says, one thing I do. Look at the middle of verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And then middle of verse 13, here it is, but one thing I do. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on, verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. When Paul uses this word uh, in verse 12 and again in verse 14 for I press on, you know it's the same word he had used back in verse 6 when he said, I persecuted the church. I mean, it's a word literally meaning to pound. So in effect, he's saying, hey, I used to gather up believers and pound them to death. Now I gather up myself and pound and press toward life. The same, he's saying, the same kind of tenacious energy, the same kind of single-minded energy that I once directed toward persecuting the church, I now channel toward being progressively conformed into the image of the Savior. You know, I think it's easy for believers to be just kind of shot out of a cannon at the beginning of their Christian life. Often this happens in the college years, and I'm not making a generic statement there, though I think it's true generically. I've actually done like scores of membership interviews as represented by uh, people in this room. That is to say, I have heard your stories, your testimonies, how God has saved you. And I know that many of you have had seasons in your life, often in your college years, where you had such wind in your sails spiritually. And I praise God for that. But the reality is that in those seasons, often when we're younger, we, we can have a hard time ever imagining growing complacent, growing sluggish and lackadaisical. And I don't want to say it's easy to walk with the Lord in college. It's never easy to walk with God in a fallen world, but it can seem with the amount of free time you have and the amount of fellowship around you, that circumstances are just kind of conspiring to help you grow in Christ. Whereas that's not exactly the experience of adult life. Fast forward five years, 10 years, 20 years, and, and, you, and you've become overnight, not, uh, over time, not overnight, 
the very kind of Christian, maybe, that you resolved you never would be. You have a job to keep and bills to pay and health to maintain and kids to raise and you just feel tired. I mean, you, you look back on previous seasons of life in which you got to enjoy unhurried, extended times with the Lord and you can barely remember what that felt like. You've been running on spiritual fumes for so long that at this point, you're just in maintenance mode. You're in survival mode. You're just hoping that the car doesn't sputter out and come to a complete stop at the side of the road. And if that's you, Paul is trying to get your attention. What does he mean in verse 13 when he says, forgetting what is behind? He's not saying, well, don't look back on past seasons of life and be challenged by them. He's not saying leave previous steps of holiness behind. Of course, that's not what he's talking about. But he is saying that the, the, the Christian life is forward-looking and forward-leaning. He's saying that the past can no longer bear the weight of my identity. And you can understand why he's saying this in light of the passage last week when he brought out the most impressive religious resume in human history and then dropped it in the trash can. He's saying, the past can no longer bear the weight of my identity. I'm not going to stand on past triumphs, and I'm not going to wallow in past failures. He's saying, I'm going to look through the windshield more than the rearview mirror. Because nothing back there has the power to make me more like Christ. No, it's not this this head-in-the-sand denial, of course Of course, we are products of our past and our upbringing, and and that stuff has shaped who we are. We can't shed it entirely. But Paul is saying, my identity is just simply not anchored anymore in those things. My identity is not anchored in anything in the rearview mirror. My identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for this forward-looking focus is not just because there are a bunch of sins in the rearview mirror that he wants to forget. Remember, we talked about this last week. But also because there may be a bunch of stuff he was tempted to take pride in, maybe even tempted to miss. Maybe the same thing is true for you. As we saw, Paul had counted it all loss, yes, but he had given up a lot. I mean, in his rearview mirror, there, remember the two heaping piles? In his rearview mirror, he sees the pile of sins and the pile of accomplishments. And guess which one looked like the bigger pile? The accomplishments. But Paul can't drive on and drive away from that pile fast enough toward the real prize, his destination, which is knowing and enjoying Jesus Christ in that state of glorified perfection. You're not on an open road with, a, with an uncertain destination. Someone is waiting for you. Someone is calling for you. Verse 14, again, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is not a cautious, polite invitation. This is a royal summons. Some translations say, could you render it, the upward call, the upward call of God in Christ This idea, I think, of of a heavenward call, an upward call, this is a timely word in our particular age. 
I mean, so much, just think, just think about it, so much of traditional culture, and, and of course, whenever you're doing cultural analysis, uh, you, you run the risk of overgeneralization, but in general, traditional cultures said, and in some parts of the world today still say, for your identity, what you need to do is you need to look outward. You need to see, find out what others in your family or your tribe or your clan expect of you. That's who you need to be. Modern culture, though, doesn't want to have anything to do with just settling for the expectations of others that they foist on you. As Elsa says in Frozen, you know, uh, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I, I mean, modern culture says, hey, your identity is not found by looking outward to other sources of authority to tell you who you are. Your identity is found by looking inward. You be who you want to be. But the Bible crashes into our lives with a very different message. It says, don't look outward to what others expect of you. Don't look inward to who you want to be. Look upward. Look upward to the God who designed you, who has creator rights over your life and knows what's best for you. And what's best for you is to make him your North Star, to start organizing your life about, around him and his ways. But friends, the greatest tragedy in human history is that none of us have done this. None of us have lived, above all, for what is upward. Maybe we've lived for, for what others say. Maybe we've lived for what we want to feel and be, but we have not organized our lives around the things of God. We've looked outward, we looked inward, but we have looked away. We have been looking away from the Lord who loves us. And because this Lord is good and we are not, because he's good and we are not, we deserve to be banished from his presence forever. But you know what happened in the gospel story? You know what happened in the middle of history? That same Lord became a person just like us and lived the life in which his gaze and devotion was completely upward. For 33 years, Jesus did not take his cues from those around him for who he was. Jesus didn't just look within him to discover himself and embrace himself and express himself. No, Jesus looked upward to his heavenly father and took his cues from the throne room and never once stumbled. And on the cross, he was banished. He got the treatment we deserved. He was exiled so that we could be brought in and brought near. And three days later, he evacuated his grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means now that anyone who turns away from their sin and stops looking outward or inward, but rather looks upward to him, not just for their identity, but first and foremost for mercy, mercy from his hands. The Bible says you will be saved. If you are a believer in this Jesus, if you've looked upward and received mercy from his hand, that this passage is a wonderful reminder that the standard for church membership, and church membership is just the public office of kingdom citizenship, okay? So if, if, if you've become a kingdom citizen through faith, you need to step into the public office that is church membership, all right? And in being a church member, 
it's important for us to remember that, that we are not called to be or expected to be perfect Christians. We've seen that, okay? We know that. We feel that. But you do have to be a pressing on Christian. You don't have to be a perfect Christian. There's only been one of those, and they, it, we named the thing after him, okay? You don't have to be perfect, but you do have to be a pressing on Christian, Oh, hear me clearly. When, the moment when, and, and I, don't, I don't have the, the time in this message to, to do a deep dive into what church discipline is, but maybe you've heard that before. I'm specifically referring to formal, corrective church discipline, which is hopefully something that a church only has to practice very rarely, but they must be willing to practice if they're, uh, if they're following the Bible faithfully. Hear me clearly. The, pro, the, mo, the moment the, this process of, of formal church discipline begins is not when a member starts sinning. It's when a member stops striving. It's not when you start sinning. It's when you stop striving. See, this is not about being perfect. This is about being vigilant to strive, to keep going, to press on when you fall, to get back up. Proverbs 24, 16, for though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. The mark of a Christian is that not that you never fall down, it's that you keep getting back up with your eyes fixed on the prize. Now, let's be honest, all of this can be a bit overwhelming, maybe even scary, because maybe you found yourself in this marathon, and the, 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 the finish line can seem so far away, and the thought of struggling and stumbling and falling in such a way that you just one day don't get back up, that, that can feel like maybe a real and frightening possibility. And frankly, it is. It is a real and frightening possibility. In fact, I'd even go further and say, it's a certainty if you're left to yourself. But did you notice the second half of verse 12? Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which, what? Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul is able to keep going, to press on, to make heavenly perfection his own. Why? Because Christ has already made Paul his own. The order is everything. Don't reverse the order of sentences in God's word. It's everything. God's initiative precedes your exertion. God's initiative fuels your exertion. No, you won't endure in the Christian life if you're not held. As I've said so many times from this pulpit, your security is not finally based in the strength of your faith, but in the indestructibility of your Savior. Or to put it another way, your security as a Christian, your ability to endure, your ability to make it home for, to that prize is not based finally on how tightly you are holding on to Jesus, but on how tightly he holds on to you. Sinclair Ferguson well summarizes the stages we see here. God calls us to it. Christ holds us to it. We press on to it. God calls us to it. Christ holds us to it. We press on to it. 
Verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Paul's saying that this striving mindset is something you have to adopt if you're a maturing Christian because it it becomes the frame of reference through which everything in your life is evaluated. And Paul's saying, he's saying, don't be content with where you are spiritually. And especially if you're not mature in your thinking, if this is not how you view the Christian life, if you're inclined to a kind of sluggish Christianity where you're just deeply committed to mediocrity and you're fine with it, he's saying, stop that. (laughs) If you're not mature in your thinking, become so. And in the meantime, in the meantime, at least live up to what you already know. That's what verse 16 is about. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. This word live up to in in ancient Greek had military connotations. It had to do with soldiers moving in formation, which implies that all of this pressing on is what? It's it's a corporate endeavor. It's not a solitary journey. Paul wants them and he wants us to stick together, to march forward shoulder to shoulder as we steadily gain ground by living poured out lives for the good of others and holding out the gospel for the good of the world. You've not arrived. You're not alone. And number three, you're almost home. Verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Don't forget verses 12 and 13. Paul doesn't think he's arrived. We've already seen that. That was all of point one. And yet he does hold himself out as an example to follow. But he's not assuming he's the the only option, right? He's saying, look for other examples too. I can't be with you in person. Who in your own midst is living an exemplary Christian life? Let them be your guide. This is how so many of us grow. If we look back on our lives, it's been people in our lives or people from history that that we've read about that have had a formative and shaping effect on who we have now become. So one way to, uh, the illustration I, I, I like, which is not original to me, is talking about your influences as like rings on a tree. If you cut a tree in half, you see the various rings. Well, if you, as it were, cut a Christian in half, you should be able to see various rings of influence that have become part of who they are. Read solid Christian biographies. Get to know Corey Tinboom and her sister Betsy through The Hiding Place. And if you're edified by that book, pick up a similar, though lesser known one called Evidence Not Seen. If you don't get these, that's fine. You can ask me later or come tonight. I'll mention them in the evening service. Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II by Darlene Rose, an amazingly edifying Christian biography. And yes, it's okay to read some biographies about Christian men. Read about Hudson Taylor in China or Adoniram Judson in Burma or Charles Spurgeon in London or Frederick Douglass in Maryland. Read stories of saints who have gone before you that will stir your soul and galvanize your faith. But don't stop there. 
Don't stop there. Also, scan your own church. Look around you for flesh and blood examples that the Lord has put in your path. Sisters and brothers who are spiritually mature, that is to say, once again, they're struggling, but they're also striving. Every elder and deacon in this church is called to be an exemplary Christian, but we are not the only ones you should be looking to and learning from. Oh, I so want River City Baptist to be a church where it's not a strange thing that someone's really growing in the Lord. <laughs> like, like that should be a normal thing, not a strange thing when, when someone is just eating up God's word and fellowship with his people and wanting to share their faith. I pray he'd make us a church like that and pray that you would become an example to others. But just as Paul thinks of positive models in verse 17, his mind turns to negative ones. Verse 18, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And before we, we, we look briefly at the profile of these enemies, I want you to look first at Paul's face. There are tears on it. Do you see that? Even with tears. This is not an intellectual game for him. Though he speaks with candor, he does not speak with contempt. His heart is broken. I mean, we live in an age, friends, I am not informing you of anything if you have an internet connection. We live in an age in which you can quickly get attention and even respect from some by painting your enemies in the worst possible light. You can, you can gain a following, a hearing, you can build a platform, you can even build a ministry. You can build a ministry and a name for yourself on smoking out compromisers and denouncing detractors and having a courageous mouth, but not a broken Heart. Paul wrote these words with tear-stained cheeks. And in so doing, he reflected the Lord Jesus himself. You know the Bible tells us Jesus wept two times. The most famous is the shortest verse in the Bible, John 11, 20, uh, 35. Jesus wept at the, outside the uh, grave of his friend Lazarus. But you know the other time he wept is when he approached Jerusalem the capital city, the epicenter of rejection against him. And when he saw Jerusalem, he sobbed. That's what Luke tells us. He sobbed. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. In an age of outrage, a broken heart will not get you much attention. But it is the attitude, it's the mindset, it's the example of our Savior. In verses 2 to 4, Paul, remember he sounded the alarm about Judaizers who were promoting legalism. Well, now in verse 19, he warns about those who might come and promote the opposite, license. He's not just giving us a profile of Roman culture, he's ticking off representative examples of an anti-poured-out life. 
We've been looking at examples of the poured out life, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Paul, ultimately King Jesus. This is what the anti-poured out life looks like, what it looks like to pursue self-indulgence rather than the way of the cross. And so Paul here in verse 19 basically just sketches for us a mugshot. Here's what these enemies of the cross look like, and he lists four features to look for. Number one, their destiny is destruction. So they may, they may be professing Christians. That's not entirely clear. What is clear is they are not true Christians. They are hurtling toward hell, even perhaps while claiming the name of Christ. Number two, their God is their stomach. They're ruled by their appetites. This is Paul's way of saying Their God isn't transcendent. In fact, he's located no higher than their belly. In fact, here's the irony. He's saying their God needs to be fed in order to exist. Number three, their glory is in their shame. These are not people who struggle with depravity. No, no, no. Struggling with sin is a mark of a Christian. These are people who don't struggle with sin. They revel in it. They are proud of it. In short, number four, their mind is set on earthly things. That is, they're supremely drawn not to Christ-likeness, but to comfort. And no one, friends, Paul is saying to us, no one who lives for comfort will be ready to take up their cross. No one who lives for comfort will be ready to live the poured out life. Verse 20 But, here's the contrast, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. For all this passage forces us to acknowledge we haven't attained, I love this because a big theme, it was all of point one, is all that we haven't attained. Here is something we have attained. Citizenship in heaven. This was an incredibly subversive thing to say in the Roman Empire. Philippi was a Roman colony and citizens were expected, they were proud of it, and citizens were expected to view and and to pay homage to Caesar as Lord. But as Paul is saying, just as we thought about back in chapter 1 verse 27, a Christian must finally take their cues from another regime, from another country, from another Lord. Middle of verse 20, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, that is from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So unlike these enemies of the cross whose gravitational center is anchored in the stuff of this life, Paul says, here is the kind of Christianity that you need to imitate. A Christianity that strains forward because the prize is so staggering. Even in the comfort of your own home enrichment, are you homesick? A Christian is someone who knows what it is to be homesick at home. Paul assumes a true Christian will be. I mean, notice he's not speaking in the first person here. This is not just an autobiography anymore. 
He's not just saying, middle of verse 20, and I eagerly await a Savior. He says, and we, he assumes we're with him in this. <laughs> what about you? What about you? I mean, if, you, if you're a Christian, of course you're open to Jesus returning. Of course you're open to it. Of course you're fine with it. But could this verse fly like a banner over your life that you eagerly await his return? If you struggle to summon that kind of longing, then I would submit that in part it may be because you haven't lived long enough or suffered long enough to have yet grown truly disillusioned with this world and what it can offer. But I think the main reason, the chief reason for any of us who struggle to cultivate this kind of longing is just because we have grown lackadaisical in looking and staring and studying the prize that awaits us. I read something the other day that said most Christians aren't aware of this, which surprised me. That's probably because I'm living in the clouds as a pastor. Okay, so I'm going to say this. Most Christians aren't aware of this. So I just want to be very clear. When Jesus got up from the dead, he didn't just have a glorified body for 40 days and then ascend to heaven and shed that body and return to some pre-incarnate state. Okay, you realize that for the last 2,000 years, the eternal Son of God has, has remained Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and will always be the God-man. To just get very specific, that means that in heaven, right now, on the throne, there is a five-foot-five Middle Eastern man with fingernails, and he will always be seated there at the right hand of the Father, except when he returns to make, make all things new and reign on the earth. But here's the thing that I read that Christians don't realize. Most Christians think that their own spiritual future is going to be this disembodied existence. Most Christians, maybe not in this church, but most Christians in the world think that we're going to be floating around, maybe on clouds with harps and angels living in this kind of eternal disembodied worship service. But no, if you belong to Jesus, then once he returns, you will not be floating on the clouds in some disembodied state. You will be walking and working and playing and laughing and singing and running and reveling in the wonders of your endlessly good and beautiful God. You will have a new body fit for a new earth. You realize that, right? A resurrected body fit for a resurrected earth. Look what Paul calls our current bodies in verse 21. Lowly. <laughs> Imagine the reactions he would get if he was walking through Gold's Gym and complimenting people on their lowly bodies. <laughs> That's what they are compared to what they will be. By the power that enables King Jesus to bring all things under his sovereign sway, Paul is saying, he will transform your lowly body and give you an eternity to experience and enjoy him on a material earth. One pastor puts it profoundly when he writes, most of us have chosen heaven over hell. Most of us have chosen heaven over hell. 
but few of us have chosen heaven over earth. Oh, let's choose it. Let's be heavenly minded so that we can be of earthly good. Let's choose it. Let's ensure that before we are there, the ways of heaven are in us. And then Paul finishes the section, chapter 4, verse 1. This is just proof that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions in your Bible aren't original and inspired because the passage goes through 4, verse 1. And he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. He's just summing summing things up. He's saying, in light of this glorious future, this staggering prize, your great reward beyond the grave, keep going, keep hoping, keep looking, because the prize of resurrection existence with a resurrected king is worth it. Well, in conclusion... This passage, as we've seen, has to do with our past, our present, and our future. And our ability to be faithful in the present has everything to do with orienting ourselves to what's ahead. It's not that our past doesn't matter, it's that it's been redefined. Someone else's past has become more important than your past, Christ's past. His past is what now defines your past. But see, Satan wants you to keep looking back. He keeps wanting you to look behind. And you know why? Do you know why the devil, the evil one, wants you to keep looking back? Because he so hates what's ahead. He wants you to keep looking to your past because he so hates your future and his future. See, if you're united to Christ, not only is his past your past, but his future is your future, and it is unimaginably bright. I realized this last night, so I couldn't not put it in the sermon. On Tuesday, like 48 hours from now, Tuesday marks 275 years since a miracle occurred on the Atlantic Ocean. 275 years since a miracle occurred on the Atlantic. A slave ship was bobbing like a bath toy in the midst of a violent storm. And the man at the helm, known by his friends as the great blasphemer, realized that his life, in that moment, he realized that his life was just as battered and unmoored as that slave ship. And for the first time in his life, this wretch cried out to the Lord and his life was changed by amazing grace. That's the song John Newton wrote to reflect on his conversion. And and near the end of his life, after decades of walking with the Lord, he had long since repented of being a slave trader. He had long since left that wicked profession. He had been a minister for years in England. Near the end of his life, he said something which so well summarizes Paul's words in Philippians 3. He wasn't reflecting on this passage, but I think this is such a a great encapsulation of what our passage is all about. At the end of his life, Newton wrote to a friend, quote, I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not what I once was. We've come a long way, friends. And the grace that has brought us safe thus far has the power to lead us home.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you define our past, you secure our future, and you do this, Lord, so that we can be faithful in the present. Help us now as a church to arise, to arise and put your armor on, to to arise and press on together in your power. And we thank you that the promise you've given, the promise you've given to hold us in, in your omnipotent grip will never wither away. You promise to hold us until we are safely home. And it's in your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.